Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. Today on the show, I've got a great guest for you, and I had a really wonderful conversation with her. I'm really looking forward to sharing it with you. Carol Horton is really the ideal person to speak with about a number of things that I've been wanting to talk about for a while and have been on the podcast to some extent. You know, these are pertaining to cultural and political trends that are happening right now in the United States, but to do so in a way that really connects with yoga and mindfulness and is a discussion that's really viewed in some ways through the lens of contemplative practices and specifically what contemplative practices can bring to bear at this particular moment in history in terms of addressing the extreme reactivity in which all of us seem to be caught up in. This seems to be an issue for people you know, across the political spectrum. And honestly, I think it is more than our viewpoint on any particular issue, a sense of if we're right or wrong, I actually think this is the biggest issue in the US is, well, I shouldn't say that. There are a lot of big issues, including inequality, which Carol touched on, and I agree is is equally important, you know, in terms of considering the ramifications for how our democracy functions. But the breakdown in civil dialogue, the inability to agree to disagree, and the choice instead to play blame game, to name call, to employ guilt by association tactics, all in a way of basically intimidating other people from speaking up about topics that in expressing viewpoints with which we might disagree. And it's really about demonizing people. And one thing that strikes me as someone who taught in K-12 education for a number of years and now does work with social emotional learning and mindfulness in schools is how terribly adults are actually failing to do the things that we expect of children. You know, um, I think about the basic norms that we put into setting up a classroom discussion. These would be things like, we challenge ideas, we don't challenge people. In other words, not making attacks personal. That point alone would go a long way towards setting up a, a civil dialogue along with many others. And it's, it's something that adults fail to do every day. They absolutely attack people. They absolutely make it personal. They are absolutely unable to separate out criticisms of ideas which are bound up in their identity from they're unable to take a step back and try to view some of these topics rationally. And I appreciate that whenever we talk about a difficult topic, whether it be, you know, there's a lot of focus on gender, race, and sexual orientation, but it isn't only those aspects of identity, you know, something we take for granted, especially if you live in one country all the time, but you become aware of when you travel is your nationality. And as an American, for example, I can tell you, even as someone who is very critical of American foreign policy in the US, when you get outside of your own country and you get the sense that people might unfairly criticizing your country in a way that you think might 
you might agree with some of the points, but you might think that it's not totally fair or balanced. There's a tendency to hunker down and to feel the need to defend your group. And so I think there is a fundamental issue that it is difficult to talk about topics that intersect with identity. You know, what's gotten lumped into this phrase of identity politics. And I agree that politics are in some sense inevitably about identity and can't be avoided. But I think what has come to be termed identity politics has been highly problematic if we make appeals to identity, group identity, the most salient characteristic of our particular claims on a topic. I think we all have to acknowledge that inevitably, if we're going to have a discussion around issues, whether it's one's religion, Christianity, or Islam, or Buddhism, whether it is race, you know, talking about white privilege, whether it is talking about American foreign policy, whether it's talking about you know, differences between men and women and the way men make certain assumptions in situations or heterosexuals make assumptions in situations. We have to be able to take a step back from our identity and talk about things as rationally as possible without getting emotionally hijacked. I think pretending, you know, that we're all rational is a total illusion. I think in reality, many times we and I think there's a lot of research to back this up, that in fact, we make decisions on a gut level and we later use our rationality to justify what we already decided, perhaps even unconsciously, we wanted to do. That said, I do think reason is really the best tool and perhaps the only tool we have in communicating with, it, with one another in public discourse. And this is where contemplative practices can be incredibly helpful. You know, people like Daniel Goleman have done a great job talking about this in a secular sense, you know, when he wrote in emotional intelligence or advocates of mindfulness talk about this, people like John Kabat-Zinn, mindfulness practice can create that stimulus between stimulus and response, which can make all the difference in communicating with each other. I also think it's not only a matter of mindfulness. I, I also think there is an important role for ethics. And in this sense, we, we can't be morally neutral. I think, for example, we have to decide that compassion is a central value. And I think that compassion is a central value because that that's an insight that emerges when you see the interdependent nature of all phenomenon and of all people. And you realize that the th same things that other people suffer from are the same things that you suffer from. And I absolutely believe that's true. And I believe that's universal, regardless of background. I clearly believe there's no debating an obvious point that some people have it much, much tougher than others. And I also think that it, that shouldn't be minimized and that should be addressed precisely in these conversations. But I also think there are fundamental aspects of the human experience, such as it is difficult when we are challenged personally on aspects of our identity to step back and have a thoughtful, reasonable, non-reactive approach. And this is where I think social emotional learning and mindfulness can make a big difference in education. It's where I think mindfulness can make a huge difference in any number of sectors. It's starting to be bigger, not only in education, but schools and in hospitals. Carol does a lot of work with yoga in the criminal justice system, 
which I think is another wonderful area, so desperately in need of mindfulness practices. And once again, compassion. I think that has to be a central value. So I've been looking to dive into these topics for a while. And Carol is really the perfect person to speak with for a number of reasons. One of which is that she is an ex-political science professor. She has her PhD in political science from the University of Chicago, who, uh, and specifically in American politics. She was a tenured political science professor for a number of years until she decided for personal and family reasons to move to the same city as her husband and to start a family. And she has been involved in a number of causes that relate to yoga and social activism and progressive causes. And Carol is someone who I think will admit to both of our biases. We're both left of center here. And I welcome anyone to this conversation who is you know, right of the political spectrum. I think we need to be in dialogue more with each other. And I think that's precisely what Carol and I are trying to do in this conversation is we're trying to identify some of the fault lines that have in particular emerged on our side of the political spectrum, generally speaking, and to talk about how really a, a lot of core values around free speech have broken down. And I think it's not only a free speech issue. And the right has their own taboos and hypocrisy around free speech. But I think it mirrors the larger public trends and political discourse in terms of breakdown and civility. I think that I hate to pile on the blame on something like social media because I think some of those criticisms are simple-minded and there are clearly many benefits to social media. But I also think it's undeniable that in many ways it has had a negative effect on public discourse, there are simply things that people say on social media that they would never say to someone's face. And they are said in a way that they would not say even to other people if they had to claim ownership of those comments instead of hiding behind an anonymous Twitter handle or just simply seeing the reaction of other people and getting that real-time feedback of how other people respond in terms of their facial recognition. So we're living in an era of reactivity and blame and hashtag outrage in which that's seemingly a really defining aspect of people is to, to express their outrage and to identify and signal to others with which groups you're allied and to which groups you're opposed. And while I'm full of opinions, as is Carol. I think that the ability to dialogue with people is something that is just, some might think of it as a necessary evil, but it's fundamental. It can't be avoided. And I think the phrase agree to disagree, we have to be able to agree to disagree with each other and to persist in that conversation with our disagreements civilly, you know instead of blowing up or walking away or whatever it is. And so this is what Carol and I are attempting to make sense of in this conversation, how we've gotten to this point in the United States over the last several years, in particular since November 2016, when Donald Trump was elected president. And on that note, I do want to say something about 
our 45th president, because I think this is relevant, you know, and I I don't have interest here in in focusing on issues of of policy. This is about the issue of language, you know, because to me, this is really, I think, the most important issue with Trump. And I really have made an effort. I, I continue to do so. I try to understand why people voted for him. I try to understand how we got to this point where someone could vote for a man who who said the things that he said and that it wasn't a deal breaker for them that he could call Mexicans rapists, that he could talk about banning an entire group of people based on their religion, you know, Islam, that he could brag about sexual assault on camera and that he could make fun of a handicapped person on and on and on. And I actually think this is the biggest issue with Trump and the thing that I worry the most in terms of irreparable damage to our democracy is just the fact that people now know you can say these things and do them and run for president of the United States and win. You know, that there is a line that can be crossed that we thought could not be crossed before. There are bipartisan rules around just civility. And I think the willingness of people to vote for someone like that is something we should examine what could have possibly driven them to that decision. And I think there are a number of reasons. I don't think it's one. But we rightly criticize Trump for his impulsivity, for, frankly, I think this is the issue. His just cruelty. He's just fundamentally not a kind human being. And I say that as something, uh, someone who, honestly, I try to really have compassion for the guy because it's very obvious that despite all the money he has, despite all the power he has, he's still just a deeply insecure human being and that nothing is going to fill that huge hole that he has inside of himself. And I don't know what created it. I don't know what happened to him in childhood, but you don't have a loving childhood and grow up to be that kind of person. You just don't. And and we rightly focus on all of these issues with Trump. I think just core, you know, issues of decency and civility and specifically around language. But and this is where I sort of want to turn it, you know, I think this is where Trump is a mirror, you know. Trump in many ways reflects us and and we always want to blame him for certain ways, but the problem is he reflects a lot of our country. And he, he not only reflects the, you know, latent white nationalism and racism that's come to the surface. I think he also represents a lot of qualities of many Americans who may not hold his political positions, the aggression in our speech, you know, the violence in our speech, the vehemence with which we are willing to attack our opponents. And I do not think the answer to responding to the phenomenon of Trump is to mimic the behavior of Trump towards different political ends with different values underneath it. And when I look at in, in my newsfeed and my people I follow are disproportionately left because that's my bias. And when I read the criticisms of people that I followed, both left of center and right of center, the intellectual dishonesty that I have seen employed against people like, you know, Sam Harris, against Jordan Peterson, to name a couple, has been shocking and a learning experience. And that isn't to say that there are not 
very well reasoned disagreements that one could have with Harris or Peterson. I certainly have my own. But engaging in personal attacks, name calling, instead of in an attempt to defame someone's character, which not only shames them, what it does is it's designed to intimidate other people from speaking up around that issue. It deliberately disengages with their arguments. Once again, back to the, you know, norms of high school class, you use reason and evidence to support your arguments. The selective use of particular pieces of evidence, particularly I'm thinking of just flat out taking certain things out of context and deliberately misrepresenting people. I've seen some pretty sorry excuses for what passes as journalism, frankly. And in an era where Trump is flat out debasing the free press, which is vital to a democracy, whether fairly or unfairly, I think journalists have to step up their game all the more so. And and also not only journalists, but people as citizens, you know, people who have blogs and social media profiles, whether you took a journalist class or not, like you need to be reflective of the fact that you have a large following now and think about what are the ethical implications of that. And to think about just the way you speak to people, you know, are you really trying to have a dialogue with people or are you trying to score points so that it looks good to all the people who follow you and just and already agree with you? This is perhaps just a fool's errand, even attempting to have this conversation because the nature of social media, I feel it's not only social media, it's the way we live our lives too. You know, you either live in a very blue area or a very red area and those are constantly being reinforced. But I truly think that if we can't shift the way we are willing to talk to each other, and I would say as a foundation there, are willing to listen to each other, that every other issue you may care about, the prospects for that improving is very dismal. You know, politics is about power and winning elections, but in order to win elections, you have to persuade people. And in order to persuade people, you don't talk down to them. You don't call them an idiot or buffoons or rednecks or whatever it is. And I will say that, you know, there is a certain smugness to humor on the left that I've succumbed to at times that people find it funny. I mean, look, I find Jon Stewart very funny. And I think there's an important role for humor. But I think we have to realize that talking to people, not down to people, is our responsibility, finding a way to do that. And yes, you cannot reason with, or no, you can't reason with people who are unreasonable. So I do think you have to exercise wisdom and discernment in terms of who you have these conversations with. But there are reasonable people on the other side, when we get past the caricatures of what we think someone looks like on the other side, perhaps I'm always aware of this because I grew up in a very Republican area and I do have many friends who are Republican still. And, you know, within that group of people, I know there's certain people that I can't have a reasonable conversation with, so I don't waste my time anymore. But there are people who I can, you know, and there are independents who I can. And I think that it's to the point where reasonable people who are willing to have a dialogue 
need to be sort of the new coalition. And we need to be willing to call out ideologues and extremists might not be the right word, but anyone who is, there are extremes on both parties. There are camps in both parties who, if you fall into the category of good versus evil, we're right, they're wrong. If you're in that camp, then you've already slipped into delusion. You know, this is exactly the same kind of language that we criticize by we, I mean, the left criticized George W. Bush for, you know, when we used to talk about how his world was black and white and he never had any nuance. And this was the way that more educated, sophisticated people thought about complex problems, which I have to say, you know, I'm inclined to that particular viewpoint. The world is shades of gray. Most problems are complex, but large segments of the left has now fallen into this kind of thinking. And this is what ideologies do for people that reduce really complex problems to very simple explanations. And Carol and I get into this a bit, but, you know, something like the gender wage gap is a complex issue. And dismissing that as simply the result of the patriarchy is an example of how some people on the left are now just reducing incredibly complex problems to black and white. And they're turning off people who could be potential allies. They're oversimplifying and distorting what is actually a complex issue. And in so doing, I think it's doing a disservice to the many instances in which women clearly are discriminated against, you know, for doing the same job as a man and paid less, you know, or another instance of sexism, which is very real, you know, and things like the Me Too movement have really brought that to light and rightfully so. And these are incredibly complicated issues. A lot of these issues around race and gender inequality, any number of these topics. And they deserve a thoughtful, nuanced conversation among, it's going to take all of us collectively to solve complex problems and not name calling, not ideological jargon that only signals positively to people on our side of the camp and turns off people on the other side of the spectrum. And I think just in in closing, also just a genuine sense of compassion and a appreciation that people see the world according to their own perspective, which is formed by their own background and upbringing, and that the way we view the world may well not be the right way. It may be partially true. It may just be different. But it's managing to, and I think this is where the issue of something like the practice of yoga comes in, it is being able to articulate a position and maintaining that we have a position and that we do care about things like justice and we have a particular vision for that. But at the same time, being able to hold that a bit more lightly and being able to see that our view may not be the only right way of seeing things. And there that may be very other legitimate ways of seeing things. And that even when someone else sees the world a very different way, that doesn't make them a bad person. It doesn't make them evil. It doesn't make them other. 
And I think if that really is the foundational work that we have to do, because without learning how to have a civil dialogue, I think the rest of the problems that we're facing will be beyond our reach because they will require our collective effort. So with that said, I want to wrap up my thoughts. That was a much longer one than usual, but I've been thinking about a lot of these issues for some time. So wanted to share these thoughts and I'm now going to turn it over to my conversation with Carol. I'll cut out the bio because I alluded to it a little bit. And she also gives some background on her own biography. So with that said, I now give you my conversation with Carol Horton. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking the self. So let's start out by, you know, just giving folks a little bit of an overview of your background, even though I read your your bio in the introduction, if you could just give people kind of a sense of your background in academia and then a transition to the kind of work you do now. Sure. So I'll try to keep it brief. I have a PhD in political science from the University of Chicago. And my specialty there was American politics, but in sort of an unusual way, political scientists who study American politics tend to do things like uh, formal models of congressional subcommittees, and it tends to be a pretty quantitative and institutionally oriented subfield. My work was really focused more on issues of identity and culture and um, civic equality. So my dissertation, which was later published as a book by Oxford University Press, is called Race and the Making of American Liberalism. And it's a historical study of the way in which what I call a kind of culturally dominant liberal discourse has been historically utilized in different ways to help form different conceptions of race and class and arguing that they intersect very much uh, with each other and construct each other and that that's been important in terms of kind of political identities and mobilizations and patterns of political possibility around equality in the United States, particularly socioeconomic equality. So that was my work. I I did that at Chicago, and then I taught at McAllister College in the political science department. But I ended up deciding to leave academia because I was married to another professor. He got tenure at the University of Chicago, and I wanted to have children. So I moved back to Chicago and I have two boys now, um, 20 and 17, amazingly enough. And um, I spent about 10 years working as a researcher, primarily in the not-for-profit sector. So I did a lot of work, um, policy issues affecting low-income families and children predominantly. And then um, there was just a kind of very unexpected political office politics sort of politics um, meltdown at the place that had turned into my primary employer. And it put me into a big tailspin and quite an identity crisis because I ended up uh, leaving the job, which I had intended to stay with as my permanent second career. I had a very severe illness, pneumonia and flu combined, and uh, was in the ho- in and out of the hospital multiple times. And And is often the case when you get into the yoga world and things like that, that prompted me to decide to really shift my course and dive deeper into my yoga practice, which at that point had been ongoing for about 10 years or so. So a couple of weeks 
maybe like six weeks after getting out of the hospital, I took a teacher training course with Anna Forrest, who's an American yoga teacher. And I just really shifted course. I started I wrote, uh, started writing about yoga. How old are you at this point, Carol? Or were you at I'm this? I'm 55. Oh, sorry. I meant were you oh, at, at that this time? time? Yeah. So let's see. I did my teacher training in 2008. Okay. I was about 40, I guess, when I did my teacher training. Okay. Math isn't my forte, so my <laughs> numbers might be Me a little either. off so as I'm thinking on the fly. We're both in trouble. So I did my teacher training in 2008, so that's been about 10 years now. And so I just I ended up, you know, thinking like, okay, I'm gonna take time off. I'm gonna do this yoga stuff, and then I'll go back to like real jobs, which in my mind were, you know, working for government or a nonprofit or something. And I ended up just kind of keeping going with yoga because things kept emerging. I'd be invited to give lectures at teacher trainings or do more writing projects. I ended up joining the, I said it would, this would be brief, but it's not. I ended up um, joining the board of the Yoga Service Council, a nonprofit and becoming vice president. I did two books with them. And yeah, it's just kind of kept going until really this year, I've started thinking seriously about really going back to a primary focus on politics and culture, but in terms of my writing and so on, but this time bringing in a more spiritually interested and also engaged perspective, which I absolutely did not have in any way before. <laughs> That's all very much coming out of my yoga practice and experience. So I, I'm in a bit of a transitional moment right now. But that's what I'm thinking about. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, yeah, I asked about your kind of timeline there because I'm always curious when people get into yoga at sort of certain ports in their life and how that can undo things in a good way. One of one of the teachers I study with, Richard Freeman, likes to say yoga ruins you. Oh, mind. yeah. <laughs> and he means it, of course, <laughs> in the best way. But, you know, I, I find that to be very true for a lot of people. And it's kind of interesting just thinking about at those different, here in your bio, at those different kind of points, how it, it was similar for myself. You know, I think it starts out as a personal thing. It's a common story for people. And then you get to a certain point where you start to think, wait a second, like it takes over. Should this be my main thing, whether it's you're actually going to teach yoga or you're going to write about yoga instead of politics or whatever it is, but there is something about it, you know, whether it's yoga or Buddhism or some kind of contemplative practice where it just kind of becomes front and center. Yeah, it was truly uh, transformational for me. There's just no question about that. It really changed my perspective on myself and life and my interests really shifted. But uh, that said, it, it didn't feel like I was leaving behind my previous life. It was more sort of just putting it in a new framework. <laughs> and I've always been very interested in integrating these seemingly disparate sorts of interests that I have. Can you talk a little bit more about that? How, how did it shift you and how did you see your, your previous interest in a new light? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, as somebody who was drawn to an academic career, it's not surprising that I'm somebody who's very comfortable kind of living in my head, so to speak. And my graduate training at the University of Chicago really, really reinforced that. I mean, the kind of cultural catchphrase there is, you know, living the life of the mind. And mind in this sense is conceived of as very much, you know, not mind, body, you know, spirit, but your brain and, and really also rationality and that sort of scholarly learning and so on and being a part of that tradition of knowledge. And so I was very, very invested in that. And while I 
certainly, you know, was interested in health and exercised and so on. I was very, very much in the mindset of, you know, my body is sort of a, something, a machine I have to take care of to carry around my analytic brain. And yoga really, really changed all that because it, over time, started reliably producing experiences that showed me that the mind is much bigger than uh, this kind of analytic, rational brain that I had been prioritizing, and that it's possible to learn how to shift your consciousness by doing certain combinations of mental focus, intention, attention, breathing, and movement in sync. And so it really opened up an interest in spirituality in a way that I didn't have before. I don't love that term, and it took me a long time to use it, but we don't really have another word other than spirituality in our culture to kind of refer to that realm of experience that's not, you know, it's not emotional experience exactly. It's not thinking exactly. It's not just, you know, sports or athletics and working with the body. It's not art, though art certainly has a spiritual dimension as does everything, but it, it's, it's this, and it's not religion, you know, in the sense of being a doctrinal sort of um, structured system of thought. So that realm of the spiritual, you know, it just really, uh, it's sort of, you know, as a lot of people in academia do, saw it as sort of flaky and woo-woo. And of course, there's a lot of that, but I didn't go beyond that. So becoming interested in the mind in a much more expansive and multidimensional way and understanding that the body is, you know, fundamental in terms of consciousness and perception that's possible truly to access emotion and memory and, you know, sort of intuition and extra rational understanding and so on by developing more of a mind body connection. Like I really believe that, you know what I mean? It's not just sort of an idea. It's something that I was brought to via experiences that I had through yoga and then kind of figured out how to have a language to talk about it. The one thing that I'm so want to ask you, because I grapple with this and I'm sure he would be the perfect person to ask because I'm also academically oriented and tended to live in my head and yoga and, and meditation, Buddhism really helped me with that. One thing that I feel like I, I am always struggling to strike a balance with or, or reconcile these two different worlds is, you know, when the more you can get into not only yoga, I'm also going to conflate Buddhism in here. And I don't mean to assume that mm -hmm. you're into that as well, or that I don't know the extent of you. No, I've been very influenced by contemporary Buddhism, for sure. Well, yeah. You know, I feel like when you get into practices like meditation and yoga in a worldview like Buddhism, there's an emphasis on the present moment and the quality of your attention um, in the state of your consciousness rather than what you fill your consciousness with. And one thing that I became very aware of is the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And I started to question the extent to which I was attached um, or had a acquisitive or grasping mentality after knowledge, like it was something that I was attached to as a way of seeking pleasure. And I, I began to question the extent to which it actually served me. And I also continually try to strike, I struggle to strike this balance between being, it doesn't mean, as you know, you know, and there's confusion around this, it's not that we're not supposed to have an ego, we need an ego, but uh, practically to move about in the world. But there is a state of non-attachment to beliefs that we ideally have in yoga or Buddhist practice. And I struggle with 
believing in that and wanting to embody that and model that, yet also realizing that we live in a society with other people and we have to articulate arguments as a way of informing a public discourse in what we see as a more constructive manner and trying to realize that we're not to attach that our own point of view, but also challenging what we see as, as bad ideas, you know, but even that term itself, bad ideas, it, it assumes that we know what good ideas are and that we're going to impose those on others. I, I'm just, I'm wondering how you kind of reconcile those tensions or if you don't struggle with those tensions as, as much as I do, I'm just curious with your, with your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think I understand the dilemmas you're pointing to. I wouldn't say those have been central struggles for me, but I guess I do look for ways of drawing from the yoga tradition and the associated writings and philosophies, ideas, and certainly, you know, Buddhism, Hinduism, yoga, Jainism, these are all very in- intertwined kind of traditions historically. And in to a large extent, you know, the boundaries between them are sort of artificial a bit and superimposed later when you're getting into the history. Anyways, that's an aside. But I think I've found a lot of help in, you know, my own interpretation drawing from the yoga tradition of the Bhagavad Gita and the idea that we are born into certain circumstances due to our karma, you know, the kind of chain of cause and effect that produces the circumstances of our lives, both individually on the level of, you know, our parents, our genes, all that kind of stuff, but also all the way up to, you know, the social and the historical and all the things that are impacting us. We don't choose that, we're born into it. But our purpose is to you know, sort of live out our dharma, which is, you know, kind of loosely translated like our, you know, unique life purpose. And those we need to embrace the karma of our lives to find our dharma, sort of accept it. And also we need to learn how to act, uh, take action in the world because the Bhagavad Gita is a, a sort of book on karma yoga as opposed to sort of hatha yoga. There's different yoga traditions, but it's a yoga of action that valorizes right action in the world, even in circumstances that to the rational mind look impossible and difficult because, you know, the central story is about young prince, a warrior who is on a battlefield and he is has family ties and, and um, close relationships to people on both sides. And so how can he take action to do his duty to, you know, lead the charge? So in fighting. So of course, it you know, depending on how you interpret it, it can be a problematic story. But I have always kind of, I guess, given myself leeway to look at these um, sacred texts and myths and stories in a metaphorical way. And so to me, I interpret it as, you know, the validity of taking action, even in circumstances that are so complex and difficult, doing what seems best for us in our own kind of karmic and dharmic circumstances. And then the final thing is that we offer our, our actions to God or, you know, Krishna or you know, sort of humanity or spirit, or again, you know, sort of depending on your belief system to whatever that is in your mind uh, that kind of signifies that which is bigger than you, a, a larger good, you know, and, and we, we offer the fruits of our actions to that larger good and we let go what we, we try to let go of the results. So that's the non-attachment that we, we are willing to 
you know, be courageous and take action in difficult circumstances to the best of we can, offering that action to the highest good as we can understand it in our lives and not being attached to the results of those actions, which we cannot control. So I think that's a very difficult thing to do, but it is actually a pretty clear idea. And I think it's a way of integrating this idea of non-attachment, which is a very profound idea. And I think a very important idea, but can also be kind of in my mind, often misinterpreted in these contemporary sort of yoga and Buddhist communities and so on to mean sort of like, I'm not going to be involved with anything. I'm not going to care about anything. I'm going to be sort of detached, you know, which is not a healthy way to live. And I think there's a lot of, you know, connection to the whole spiritual bypassing idea and so on that you get into there. But if you look at it more as, you know, I mean, even if you don't take action in the world, that's a way non-action is a type of action. There's always, you're going to do something that's going to impact others and yourself. So making good choices about that, but then, you know, being willing to just be content with doing your best and letting go of attachments to the results of those actions, which you cannot control. Yeah. And you cite a great, I mean, I think the Bhagavad Gita is one of the great texts, especially for those of us who are, you know, actually householders, you know, who, who aren't living a renunciate lifestyle. It's funny, as you were answering the question, I, I realized that, you know, I sort of fell into or reproducing the thinking that I often call out, which is a lot of Eastern philosophy is there's this debate between renunciate and householder schools, right? And I think you know, you get it between different traditions, but you also get it within them. For example, you know, and I'm going to generalize here again, but still, you know, the Theravada idea of the Arhat versus the, the Bodhisattva in, in Mahayana Buddhism. And you, you see things like engaged Buddhism, you know, a lot more in other countries than, say, I would say Thailand, you know, where I live. And perhaps it's because I've been reading more, more Buddhism recently. And I think in Unless you're reading some of those engaged Buddhist teachers, a lot of the model in Buddhism, and it's, I think it's true in, in other Eastern philosophy, philosophical schools, it is the renunciate. You know, and even when they're going and they're talking to lay people and they're not encouraging people to be renunciates, a lot of the ideas are, are predicated in a renunciate lifestyle. And so... If that's kind of not named and called out and figure out how do we integrate this, it can be tricky to kind of recapitulate some of those problems. So I think it's not only the the Western misinterpretations of some of these ideas, which also happens with spiritual bypassing, but there's also genuine debate even within the traditions themselves historically, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great point. And I think perhaps because I got into yoga kind of later in life and I already had a career. I had been through, you know, a fair amount of life experiences. I was soon to have children. It was just very clear to me that I was not in any way a renunciate. And I was not, you know, I was not sort of off also in like a little yoga subculture, which a lot of people are uh, who get as serious about it as that as I do. I mean, I've always lived more you know, in sort of, I guess, for lack of a better term, sort of an academic, you know, professional sort of subculture, because still I'm married to a professor, and that was my training. And, you know, I'm kind of in that world still. And so it's just, and then with my, I wasn't also, as I said, you know, I had all these interests in politics and policy, and I, I had no interest in giving that up completely. I, I really was more interested in just sort of broadening my 
understanding of everything, <laughs> you know, including that, but not limited to that. And so, yeah, I am aware of the renunciate tradition. It was also very clear to me that, you know, core texts in the modern yoga tradition, like the Yoga Sutra, were written for people who wanted to disengage entirely from social life, I mean, in a radical way. So yes, renunciate. And that was clearly not only what I was not doing, but not what, you know, pretty much anybody else who had anything to do with the sort of yoga I was involved with was doing either, nor could they do it. Uh, it was just like not possible in terms of the structures to support something like that. They're not there in our society. So it, it was immediately clear to me that people were kind of not really coming at these texts with that understanding and interpreting them through their own cultural lens and, and making assumptions about how they were immediately connecting to some sort of timeless wisdom that meant the same thing and, you know, whatever, 250 BCE as it does in, you know, the 21st century. But to me, that was just like, obviously not the case. <laughs> so yeah, coming to this with older and with a whole, you know, training in social science and thinking a lot about how traditions evolve. I was, you know, my dissertation and my academic book, they're very historical. So you know, I said it was on race and class and identity and so on, but it was really looking at the evolution of the United States from the post-Civil War, you know, Reconstruction period through, you know, really the Reagan era. And so it's very, very historical and, and just looking at how these kind of mm, identities and associated ways of understanding the world are contested and changed and so on. So I came to yoga with all that, all those kind of lenses in place. And uh, that's what I started, you know, writing about a lot was, you know, sort of looking at like being a participant observer, you know, to use an academic term in this yoga world. And so it was from the very beginning, a sort of integration of a social science perspective, a householder pers life, you know, um, an interest in learning more about the yoga tradition, and then an active practice of yoga that included, you know, meditation, asana, pranayama, and, you know, studying as much as I could some of the core texts. Well, let's talk about, you know, since you've done a lot of work at this intersection of social activism and yoga, you know, how we can kind of bring our contemplative practices to bear on understanding the larger political and cultural scene, because it's been interesting watching things from abroad. We seem to be living in an age of, of reactivity, you know, and, and this seems to be mm -hmm. especially the case from November 2016 for some reason. Mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> I, I, I can't why. imagine why. <laughs> and it, it's notable also, yeah. I think, to probably call out – and I, I also would not say the origin is there because I see – have seen it been going on for some years before that and I, I want to get into that with you. And I also want to note – the particular bias when I say that in the interest of fairness, because, you know, I think the world that you and I are involved in and the kind of people that we follow on social media and who follow us, we're more likely to make a statement like that. Like we're living in a world of reactivity since November, 2016. And perhaps if our social worlds had looked very differently, you know, November, 2008 would have been, you know, when things started to be very reactive, you know, and in some ways, I think people are just sort of are struggling with that, how tough it is when 
not only your person doesn't win, but but this is unprecedented on many levels. But we seem to have reached some kind of new. There seem to be some new trends, and and I want to let you unpack it. And perhaps a good way to just sort of kick that off is by talking about this piece that you've written recently called Jordan Peterson and the Failure of the Left. And for those who haven't read the piece, would you mind kind of summarizing or outlining some of the arguments that you made in that article? Well, as I actually say in the piece, I first heard about Jordan Peterson because a friend and colleague of mine was posting extremely negative and critical articles on him on Facebook and also commenting and writing, you know, his own analyses. And so it it piqued my interest because coming from an academic background, I felt that it was rare that, well, Jordan Peterson is a Canadian psychology professor at the University of Toronto, that someone with that background would suddenly become a social media sensation, extremely controversial, and all these people would be paying attention to him and arguing about him. And he has a large following on YouTube. He's on Twitter. He has lots and lots of podcasts. They're very long on multiple platforms. He has his own platform. So I just, I thought this was very odd, you know, because um, one of the things actually, as an aside, I didn't like about academia was, hey, I was in political science and most people were, most of the faculty, that is, and the students were very detached from actual politics and this role of the quote unquote public intellectual, you know, somebody who engages with the broader public, but brings a kind of scholarly background and, you know, has a lot of education and, and training in um, some sort of academic discipline. You know, it used to be a lot more prominent in the culture than it is now. And by and large, you know, it just wasn't happening much. And so it's like, okay, that's weird. And I was curious and I wanted to check it out. So, you know, I started listening to some of the podcast interviews uh, that Jordan Peterson had had done, and they tend to be quite long. You know, you're talking like hour, hour and a half, two hours, sometimes conversations. And I found it very interesting. You know, he has also a series of his lectures from the University of Toronto on his YouTube channel. So there's a whole set of lectures on the Bible that's, you know, looking at the Bible, Bible as a sort of... Um, set of like deep myths of, you know, that have informed Western culture. So kind of coming from a Jungian, you know, collective unconscious and archetypes and all this kind of thing, like Joseph Campbell mythology, all that kind of stuff, kind of going back through the Bible, making it very accessible to a popular audience. I thought that was interesting. He has, you know, so et cetera. So it's a mixed bag, but he also came into prominence because of very hot button identity politics issues. So you know, he spoke out against a, as I understand it, an alteration in the Ontario hate speech legislation or like a a kind of legal code that they have in that province, which added the category of, you know, people, I think, particularly in, you know, professional positions where you're, you're dealing with the public, or I'm not sure exactly what the categories are. I don't think it's everybody, but certainly somebody like a professor, like he was, must use the preferred gender pronouns of anyone they encounter. Otherwise, they could be charged with hate speech. So he uh, did not like that because he felt that it was, he called it compelled speech and that, you know, it was very different to decide to use the gender pronouns that someone asks you to use as an individual than to be under threat of being charged with a crime 
for not using the gender pronoun that someone wants, particularly when the list of gender, gender pronouns is kind of constantly expanding and includes many words that have just been recently made up. So many people don't even know what they are. So I actually thought he had quite a good point on that. I mean, I am quite concerned with the way some of the legal norms have evolved around particularly sex and gender issues and and the kind of profound lack of concern for due process and state overreach that a lot of people on the left seem to have these days in these areas. So I was already concerned about that. So anyway, so I was sympathetic to this and I wrote this article. Well, and then I started following, you know, the debate about Jordan Peterson on social media. And basically what I saw was that every sort of left of center, with few exceptions, but let's say 98%, or I don't know what exactly, but it felt like that, 95 to 98% of, you know, articles, blog posts, discussions, social media posts, memes, you know, just individual rants, whatever, if it came from a left of center position, liberal to left, it would just simply denounce Jordan Peterson as, you know, alt-right, sexist, misogynist, you know, wholly destructive, transphobic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's just, you know, and also this guy is a total idiot. You know, there's nothing here. There's no there there. He's intellectually bankrupt, you know, people, he's, I think one article called him the like stupid person, smart person. You know, it's this person who people who don't know anything think is smart, but he's really not. My having listened to the, to him speak for, you know, about, about all those various things I list, I listed for hours on end. And I, you know, I'm coming from my background, pretty confident in my ability to assess intellectuals. You know what I mean? Like that's been my world. So I'm not kind of like, Oh, I don't know. I have a pretty strong sense of confidence in my ability to say, like, is this person smart and interesting or is he an idiot? I thought Jordan Peterson was smart and interesting. I mean, that's the bottom line. I did. That doesn't mean I don't I love every single thing he says or wouldn't question him. But to me, the interesting thing with somebody like that is in fact to engage, to question, to say, like, okay, you know, I agree with you on this, but what about that? Or you're arguing this. I don't really buy this. You know, you could look at it this way, which I think needs to be done. But instead, all I saw was people left of center, which is a pretty broad spectrum, giving these very simplistic kind of denunciations and very, very, very aggressively. And to the point that, you know, if you kind of spoke out against that, you there's a sense of, you know, you might kind of swarm by people like ranging from like, oh, no, you're wrong. Don't, you know, you can't like, don't you see? And then like a flurry of like, articles all saying the same thing about how this guy is like, you know, as I put it, like a wolf in sheep's clothing, alt-right sheep or alt-right wolf in professorial sheep's clothing, you know, don't be fooled. Or, you know, you run the risk of sort of getting the same denunciations thrown at you. And I, I, I feel that this was, it started to chafe, you know, at this. It's like, look, this is interesting that this is happening. And I think it would be much better, actually, from a left of center perspective, if somebody was, rather than kind of hurling epithets and creating a caricature, which anyone, in my opinion, who spent an hour and a half listening to one of his talks or whatever, would be quickly disabused of the idea that this was, it was that simple and that this was actually true. And then you lose credibility um, on your side, quote unquote, as people who are really thoughtful. So basically, the article is an argument for 
you know, people on the left should stop sort of combating those who don't fall into line with certain increasingly simplistic ideas that aren't really discussed, aren't really defended, aren't open for discussion. And if you won't fall into line with that and you're doing something different and bringing up other ideas, this this habit of just denouncing that, that move is deeply problematic and shows you know, the kind of intellectual bankruptcy of the left as it now exists. So that's basically what it's about. And it, it was written out of a sense of, of frustration and concern, you know, because as somebody who um, has always identified with being on the left, it's like, geez, if I'm in my 50s, I've always identified on the left and I am so fed up and turned off <laughs> and disgusted by these dynamics. Like, what is everybody else thinking who doesn't have those kind of loyalties? Yes. I mean, that's yeah. not good. <laughs> and I, I want to get to unpacking more of the individual issues. And I also want to get to that point as well, because when I talk to a lot of my left of center friends in the U.S., it's often brushed over the point you just made. It's the a common reply I'll hear is, yeah, 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 I don't like X, Y, Z either, but the other side's worse is what it all comes down to. And I just don't think that's going to cut it anymore. I don't think it's going to cut it for a number of reasons. I think morally, you have an obligation to call out bad ideas, even when it happens in your own tribe. And I also think pragmatically, if you want to articulate a larger argument to the society at large and win, you've got to win over independence. You know, you've got to win over middle of the road people. You know, Trump didn't win by just winning alt-right people. And so I think that, yeah, the issues of tribalism into which we've now fallen are, are really reinforcing this problem. And I think Peterson has said this himself. Part of the reason you don't see a lot of the, the other people who are calling out to the far left are other people on the far right. And that's why he gets lumped in with them. These kind of guilt by association tactics that the left loves is because no one in the sort of the center, at left, center left, the moderate left is speaking up about this. Yeah. And on the whole, they won't talk to him. I mean, Russell Brand is held up as a key example. And I think rightly so, because Russell Brand has, you know, always identified left to center. And he's done two quite long podcast interviews with Jordan Peterson. And I definitely recommend them. They're extremely interesting. And in fact, he does do what I'm talking about. He, like in the last, last podcast, it just came out, I think a couple of weeks ago on the Russell Brand platform, you know, he he's pushing this idea that you know, consumerism creates certain psychological and social problems. And Peterson's sort of like, hmm, <laughs> you know, like he is like, clearly he's thinking about this. My sense is he hasn't really thought into that. My sense of Peterson, he's not a great uh, social scientist sort of thinker. You know, he's a clinical psychologist. He's worked a lot with individuals. He is a conservative in the classical sense. So he believes in the importance of individual level positive change, which I believe in as well. It's just that I also believe in the necessity of looking at, you know, macro social issues because of the sort of times we live in. We live on, you know, modern complex societies. It's necessary. I don't, I find him very weak on that level. So Brand is, you know, bringing up that sort of thing. And, you know, Peterson is actually pretty like, hmm, yeah, you know, like he's not trying to shut it down. He's sort of taking it in. And in a sense, sort of my reading of it was conceding that Brand, you know, had a, had a point. And uh, certainly it was something to think about, even though it's not the way he thinks. Now, I would just point out that Russell Brand is a comedian. 
<laughs> and, you know, I mean, it's just this odd pattern that we've had in the United States, at least, where, you know, beginning with John Stewart, you know, the, the people who have tended to be the most thoughtful and insightful and willing to break new ground when it comes to talking about important social and political issues have been our comedians, right? I mean, it's just, it's sort of, I just think it's really a pattern. And I think our academics, by and large, have, you know, not been playing that role for, you know, the public, our, you know, political leaders have, by and large, not been playing that sort of role. And so it's just really kind of, I think, emblematic of these larger trends that, like, Russell Brand, who's a professional comedian and actor, and you know, I, I mean, he's the one kind of bringing up the most thoughtful sort of leftist like critique and discourse with Jordan Peterson. I mean, come on, it just I, I like Russell Brand. I think he's very smart. Uh, he's also really funny. I like his work, but it just seems like there should be other people playing this role totally. as well. <laughs> You know, and they're There's not. not and, and this is my big problem reading <laughs> really the criticism of Peterson. It's like yeah. I found a number of problems with it. You know, one, it sort of seems to be a series of tactics which I've seen the left deploy for some time. And once again, I probably have a bias on the left for a couple of reasons. One, I'm left of center, right? And so those are people more I follow more on social media. And uh, and I admit, you know, I expect more of the left because I don't have any hope in the, and I say this with all respect, I have many friends who are Republican, but you know, I'm not looking to the Republican party for that they're going to solve America's problems. So I'm holding the left to a higher standard for that reason, but I've seen them employ a number of tactics well before Peterson, you know, for years. And I really saw it happen with, um, with Sam Harris was someone who I, who pointed this out to me it, the way he was viciously vilified and attacked. And what became very obvious is that he exposed a lot of the left's taboos. And it wasn't, once again, back to comedians. It, the other people doing this were uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone from South Park, you know, and, and yeah, they South did the episode Park, right? showing where basically, mm-hmm. you know, it's yeah. totally okay in liberal circles to talk about how funny it was that you saw the Book of Mormon you know, which just totally mocks someone's religion, you know. But the moment you utter a thoughtful critique of Islam focused on the actual ideas, I mean, watch out, including if you're a person of color, including if you're a woman, including if you're a Muslim, including if you're an ex-Muslim. So the left has some very clear no-fly zones that it patrols very viciously. Yeah, absolutely. And... Mm -hmm. I think this is a real problem for a number of reasons. And I think it creates, I think this is part of owning up to the role we play and the left doesn't want to admit it, but by intimidating silence from thoughtful people speaking up around real issues, we've created a huge vacuum in the center into which a demagogue like Trump has stepped. And I don't think the left has been willing to go there yet in admitting that. Right. And it's it's also not only... Uh, compounding the problem. So there's all that happens on the level of all these, you know, race, culture, gender, you know, sort of identity politics issues, right? So that's all going on. And I totally agree. And it's hugely problematic. And, you know, it's problematic for people like us who don't want to be attacked by our friends. It's even more problematic for people who feel that they're being 
you know, and in fact are being, you know, disdained, looked down upon, vilified, demonized, dismissed, and made fun of on a constant basis. Like, that's not the way to win people over, you know, and there's no interest in winning them over. So it's a very elitist kind of thing. On top of that, uh, the traditional role of the left, you know, if you go back to say, you know, Marx, late 19th century politics, development of the labor union, labor movement, you know, in the U.S., kind of in more mainstream politics, the New Deal, even the Great Society, that sort of thing. There's huge focus on socioeconomic inequality and combating very bread and butter issues of, well, addressing, I should say, very bread and butter issues of things like equal access to good quality education, equal access to good quality housing, reasonable labor standards, health and safety standards. You know, the labor movement brought us the eight-hour day, which of course is gone now. You know, environmental standards, regulation, healthcare access, social security, so old people aren't dying destitute, you know, in squalor. I mean, that's what the left has been about a lot, has been, you know, the primary focus used to be on bread and butter issues, which, you know, most people care about, particularly when since the mid 1970s, you know, there's been huge shifts in national and global economies, and the middle class in the United States and other countries, uh, more wealthy countries has been really eroding and really decimated, and much more precarious. And we have, you know, clearly entrenched poverty, the left is not addressing those things. The left is not interested in addressing those things. The left is focusing on race and gender and trans issues. And the combination of those things leaves a giant vacuum. And, you know, Trump, like, drove his reality TV, you know, authoritarian sort of charismatic leader truck right through this gaping opening that... I mean, Bernie Sanders was trying to, you know, address it. And there was a whole, you know, there's that whole story. Yes. But since Trump won the election, I, I mean, I just assumed, and this is why my politics have changed a lot since the election. I just assumed, given what we saw with Sanders, given what we saw with Trump, given what anybody who's been thinking about these things knows to be true. No one's contesting anymore that the middle class is eroded. Nobody's contesting that, you know, globalization has created a lot of economic inequality, you know, the 1% and all that kind of stuff. That's all accepted now. So I was just assuming naively that uh, once Trump won the election, that the Democratic Party would sort of like reanimate its traditional role of championing the cause of building up a strong middle class, which is a foundation of a democratic society. But they haven't. <laughs> You know what I mean? As far as I can see, and that, of course, there's individual people in particular races, and I'm generalizing. But by and large, the Democratic Party and the broader left and left discourse has not done that. I just don't see it. The combination. What are they interested in? I mean, they're interested in, you know, transgender issues. They're interested in, you know, Me Too. They're interested in the Russia investigation. They're interested in, you know, the Tanahashi Coates kind of understanding of, you know, America's racial problems, which in my mind also leaves out class politics. It is really problematic in that way. So, you know, it becomes so this critique. So what I've started to see is that, you know, this sort of Trump supporter critique that 
the left has become, the so-called left has actually become in many ways a very elitist sort of thing, not necessarily that everyone on the left is wealthy or whatever, but it's sort of a cultural elite that is aligned perhaps unwittingly with sort of dominant economic interests because there's zero interest in sort of like tackling these questions of economic inequality head on. I mean, I can see why it rings true to people, let's just say. And I can see why why a lot of people who, particularly if they're the class of people who's constantly being vilified, like white males, for example, number one, why they just say, you know, screw that. Like, you know, no one's going to support something that doesn't address your bread and butter issues, particularly when you're every day, you know, it's harder to get a good job. Jobs are very insecure. Most don't offer health care, et cetera, et cetera. You go down the line those things aren't being addressed and you're being vilified. And if you try to ask a question, you're being shouted down as racist and sexist and transphobic, whatever. It's not very attractive. It's not a way there's, there's, I don't see any sort of winning movement coming out of that, nor should it win. Cause what's it offering when it comes to these foundational foundational issues and you know, everything else, all of the stuff about sexual harassment, all that kind of stuff, unless you have a strong middle class, Anything that we've come to that ever approximates democracy, in my view, will not last. It just won't. It can't. And the authoritarianism that was most likely to come as people feel and are, in fact, more and more insecure is, is most likely going to be very unkind to the majority of people who aren't well off themselves, which is the majority of people. So it just strikes me as a very bad situation. And feeling that you're doing something important by like jumping on Jordan Peterson and, and demonizing him as like somebody who's the Pied Piper, the alt right, just strikes me as a huge like it's another one of these huge distractions that really needs to be called out. Now, this is not to say, of course, it's true that there are many organizations and individuals and thinkers and writers and intellectuals and academics who are trying to address these issues. It's not saying like nobody's out there. That's not true. The problem is they're still too marginalized. They still don't have enough of a voice and they are not part of any sort of organized political movement or discourse or certainly party that allows their work to be more relevant. And what's also true is that the questions that are being posed are so hard to answer in terms of how to address these kind of issues of inequality that I think in part people are afraid to bring them up because they don't have easy answers. But you know, I think they still need to be brought up because if they're not, how do we ever even begin to grapple with it or show that we're trying? Let's, I want to try to figure out, you know, when exactly some of these fault lines began to emerge for you. You know, I referenced Harris earlier as someone who I saw sort of revealing some of these fault lines happening. And, and I'm thinking back, I mean, I, to, so to when that was, you know, it was probably, I mean, can't remember when Sam started his podcast, but it's probably around 2014, 2015. I feel like that is when I began to notice a lot of these trends in terms of free speech issues on college campuses and things like that. And so I'm kind of wondering for you, prior to Peterson, you know, did you see these issues emerging earlier? And, and if so, when? You know, I, I think as I, I kind of alluded to in passing before that I had a level of faith in, perhaps one could say, going back to our earlier discussion, attachment to, you know, the idea of, you know, the Democratic Party still being a sort of vehicle to 
address um, a lot of these left concerns. Like, uh, you know, I understand it's not a radical force, all that. I, I'm not really a radical person. You know, I'm more of a kind of pragmatic leftist who believes in a lot of basic liberal principles and but also believes in a big role for government, but isn't like I'm not totally anti-market or anything like that. So, you know, so I'm the sort of person who was hoping that the Democratic Party would be more of a vehicle for this, that and various forces would push on them and they would respond, you know. So I think actually for me, I saw these problems earlier, but I guess I had this kind of naive faith that when things got really, when it became clear how much there needed to be a clear assertion of a strong new direction, that it would come, right? So it's kind of when I saw that it didn't come that I started to really question, because I felt before the last presidential election in the United States that, you know, the Sanders movement was showing that the Democratic Party needed to move to the left. And even if he didn't win, I thought, you know, Hillary Clinton would win. And I thought that this strong emerging movement with a lot of support and, and that was needed and the beginning to address some of the things we've already discussed, I thought it would be pushing the Democratic Party to the left and there'd sort of be this, you know, like tension, but yet workable relationship between more of the Clinton centrist and the Sanders leftists and others, and that it would sort of be a dynamic tension and that the center of gravity would shift in that direction. And I thought even if the election was lost, which I certainly wasn't expecting, that that was going to happen. So the fact that we're now a year and a half later, it hasn't happened. And in the meantime, there's been so much attention to other issues and so much escalating up of the kind of dynamics you alluded to, like, well, any problems with our side don't matter because they're so much worse, which kind of also creates the need to constantly amplify, if not caricature, anyone who doesn't fall into line with your side, which we already discussed, you know, that the Peterson thing is one example, that has really escalated. And so I guess it just, it's really been pretty recent for me that I've kind of felt that the only way forward is to break ranks, you know, to break ranks. Like I was just telling with my own past loyalties, I guess I'm saying, I was just telling my son last night, you know, I've, I've identified as a Democrat my entire life. And I actually, until the last election, was sort of impatient with people who were independents because I kind of felt like, yeah, I know it's the biggest group, but there's more independents in the United States now than Democrats or Republicans. But I, I still felt like you should be a Democrat and, you know, like you, you kind of loyalty, like you stick with them and like you just keep trying to make it work better and like it's the way to go. And, and I'm like, you know, now I'm an independent too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just that kind of loyalty or loyalty, like those sort of writing the Jordan Peterson thing. Like I knew that by coming out as saying I'm a left, but no, I don't think Jordan Peterson is an idiot. And no, I'm not willing to deny. I think a lot of what he's saying is interesting. I'm not on board with every single thing. He's not like my guru or something. And, but you know, no, I'm not going along with this kind of unspoken insistence that you know, somebody like him, and there's so many other instances and issues must be characterized as XYZ, or, you know, you can be characterized as XYZ yourself, because you're not conforming. I don't like that sort of group think, you know, I'm very, very allergic to it. And I think that combined with just kind of thinking about how all this was evolving and becoming more and more concerned and alienated, it just makes me feel like I'm breaking ranks with the whole thing. Like if somebody says, well, you're not on the left, which in fact, 
you know, some people like in the Facebook discussions or whatever about my Jordan Peterson article are like, well, she's not really on the left. Is she, you know, how can she say that? It's like, you're not part of our, you know, group anymore, our tribe or whatever, you know, right. you don't count because you're saying this, you're excommunicated. It's like, fine. I don't care anymore. But that perfectly <laughs> sums up so much of what's going on. It's you're not on the left. It's, it's, there's this sense that they can mind read, you know, they know what's inside your head, you know, that, there's an assertion about motives, about all these particular things that people on the left claim, I mean, that I can only speak one thing Sam Harris notes. He says, and he's someone who gets a, a lot of criticism from both the left and the right. He says the kind of attacks he gets from the left are on another order, you know, from that which he gets oh, from really? the right. I, I can't say, you know, and I'm conscious of I listen to certain podcasts where we're all having this choice architecture where it filters our particular views. But, you know, that's part of why I listen to Peterson too. It's I'm not conservative. <laughs> and and he makes me, he's made me engage with liberal ideas in a more thoughtful way. And one thing that is just blatantly obvious to me is overwhelmingly from the people who have written about him is they have, they're not wrestling with his ideas. They haven't read the guy's work. You know, the kind of works that you see, and you mentioned him as someone who who you'd have problems with, and I actually wouldn't mind you hearing hearing you elaborate on that at some point, but uh, with Ta-Nehisi Coates, but, you know, that's someone who I like to read and I have respect for him, even when I don't agree with yeah, him. It's like, I'd love to read, he's a brilliant writer. And it's like, I'd love to read a Ta-Nehisi Coates critique of why Jordan Peterson is so off base when he talks about not analyzing race at the level of institutions, because I think that's a real shortfall in Jordan Peterson's thinking. I agree. But that's not the kind of critique we're hearing from the left. The kind of critique we're hearing from the left is perfectly typified in the article that prompted you to write what you wrote. It's this custodian, Jordan Peterson, custodian of the patriarchy, where we're throwing out these vague terms like the patriarchy, which is used to describe every sort of disparity between men and women under the sun. And it's a lot of insinuations. If you look at the quotes in the article, they are not from Peterson themselves, the one that are most damning. It's a lot of guilt by association tactics. Yeah, it's a that was article was a total hatchet job. I mean, very well done. Total hatchet Dutch. job. So, did you notice what yeah. she did? She would quote a couple of his supporters, and she would just find really unfavorable ones, like ones that were pickup artists, or another one that said something about race. And I thought Peterson never said that. And then she quotes that as this is the kind of person who represents Peterson. She never interviewed any female audience members and asked why they might like to go to Peterson and watch him as a woman. It was just a total... Yeah, she had an agenda and she... And I, you know, and that's the other thing. That's what the New York Times wants. You know, I mean, I've also become much more critical of mainstream media because I've seen how the playing to the base, the hewing no matter what to certain lines on certain hot button issues that, you know, help you keep your readership excited and give you like a certain sort of, you know, position politically. And of course, you know, makes your business more viable by having more clicks, having more shares, having, you know, the whole social media kind of economy. You know, I mean, the New York Times for me, it's sort of like the Democratic Party. It's exactly like it. You know, I was one of these liberal elite people, you know, left leaning, academic, all that kind of stuff who, 
you know, I assumed that the New York Times, with major exceptions, like they played a terrible role leading up to the Iraq War and so on, and they didn't own up to that. They owned up to it eventually, you know, but I saw them as holding up to a standard of journalism that would not produce this, that kind of hatchet job. But yet, then I started seeing how, you know, there's this kind of slant and filtering and, you know, crafting of a narrative on these certain sorts of, you know, hot button issues quite consistently by the New York Times and quite consistently by other sort of left of center, or I mean, it's hard to call the New York Times left, but sort of, you know, liberal to left side of the spectrum in the United States, that it, it happens quite consistently and that I'm not getting, you know, I, I, I'm not getting the sort of more objective journalism that I had thought that this this enterprise was committed to, at least on many issues. And, you know, the right, of course, you know, they hear that and they just laugh at you as like, oh, you're finally had your red pill moment or waking up and so on and so forth. Well, sort of yes, sort of no, because the other thing is I'm not going to like jump onto somebody else's bandwagon either. And, you know, we haven't taught about, talked about the problems on the right. And, you know, truth be told, I'm less familiar with it because that's not my world. And, you know, I certainly basics and so on. But, you know, I do, since I started noticing how polarized the discourse was and how artificial it was becoming in many ways, I started making more of an effort to read around uh, different publications and different sides of the political spectrum. And I think it's a good habit to cultivate and you know, I, I feel like the major players like the Fox News versus the, you know, CNN and so on, like they're just kind of increasing, like, like doing the same thing in mirror image. It's like they have to keep getting their base upset about how bad the other side is. And so, you know, I don't pay as much attention to Breitbart and Fox and all that kind of stuff, but they're constantly whipping up fear and hysteria among their base about how bad we are. You know, there's Antifa, there's and and these things are true. It's not like they don't happen, but they're played over and over again and exaggerated. And, and you know, it gives you the sense, like, if you stepped onto any college campus in the United States, that there'd be, like, black bass people swarming around wedding to, like, take a baseball bat and, you know, whack down anyone who dared to, like, wear a MAGA hat or whatever. You know what I mean? It's just, like, fear-mongering. It, both sides are doing the same thing. It just, like, keeps amping up. And, and then the room for people who, you know, want to have a more accurate view of reality, which at least yet isn't in fact that black and white. It's just you have to go to sort of other smaller platforms and so on to see that. And, and there is some there, but it's it's kind of a cobbling together for me of information and try and, and comparing it to my own experience and talking to people and things I know. It's it's it, you know, it's it's a funny sort of moment where, you know, speaking of the non-attachment and so on, like I've really had to kind of let go of certain loyalties that I didn't want to let go of or certain identities that I wouldn't want to let go of or certain taken for granted. I think in the end that, you know, you talked about, well, how does the kind of practice of meditation or yoga or whatever come in? And I mean, I think that's a kind of practical way in which it comes in and trying to, you know, be willing to be honest with yourself. It's like, if I'm really not identifying with this anymore, then I'm just not going to keep holding on to it. And I think a lot I've thought about from the Buddhist perspective now is like being willing to practice being okay with the discomfort of not knowing exactly how to situate yourself in this current like sort of social landscape, like not having a kind of evidence sort of you know, structure in place and way of understanding, like sort of being seeing that there's a lot in flux and there's a lot changing and there's a lot of 
yeah, there's just a lot of churn and conflict and and rather than needing to like double down and sort of like, I see a lot of people sort of like holding on to like some simplistic line, like this is what's true. I'm going to plant my flag here and goddamn I'll defend it no matter what, you know, for that certainty, just being more, trying to be a little more okay with, okay, my mind's changing on things. Yes, I do have obviously strong views on so on and various things, but you know, the world's a complicated place and I could be proven wrong and I want to be in dialogue with people who are also interested in thinking about things. And I also want to try to bring an ethical grounding and even a spiritual grounding to the inquiry because, you know, at the end of the day, we're all going to die and none of these issues are going to be perfectly resolved in any ways. We just got to try to do the best we can. And going back to the Bhagavad Gita thing, you know, sort of do the best you can in the circumstances you're, you're presented with really try to do the best on kind of a deep level. And then you just, you know, you can't control the outcome. So why don't we move on to another topic and one that I wanted to ask you about. You know, another one of these topics that is difficult, and since your expertise is race, I I definitely want to get there. But, you know, gender is one that I want to talk about as well. And you touched on it in your article when you sort of referred to, you know, some of the vague language that the left used to describe a series of complex and nuanced problems, you know, such as like, the patriarchy. And and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what your assessment is of the way gender and gender-related issues are discussed. And and I definitely want to get to the James Damore memo, but if there's anything that that jumps at you off the bat, feel free to say that before we kind of go there with the, the Google issue. Yeah. I mean, I guess my initial response is that I feel where things are right now, it makes me very sad and worried. I feel that gender roles have changed so quickly. It's such an important part of our lives and relationships that, you know, it's so important that we are able to sort of evolve with the the changes that have happened in positive ways. And I feel if there's an inability to discuss the changes and to try and kind of, you know, feel through how different people are doing and connect and listen and make sense and have empathy and, and threatens to make more and more people very angry, afraid, alienated, resentful, even hateful, you know, on a very, very deep, personal, intimate level, you know, you're talking about like, feeling deeply separated from half the human race, <laughs> you know, you're talking basically, you know, men and women, that's a really bad problem. And it's very concerning to me that we need to, I think, carve out more room for dialogue, I guess, is the word and understanding that different people are in different places. Society has changed really fast. These are very hard issues and kind of move away from a punitive model, which is, I think, what's been adopted by and large. It's like, we're going to find, you know, miscreants and evildoers and criminals and and we're going to punish them. You know, there's a lot of that that's been going on. In some cases, you know, I never actually believe in vengeance and like just punishment as pure, vengeful, you know, like, what's the word, like making someone suffer, you know, I think that's what, you know, sort of 
is very popular in the United States and, and sort of supports our mass incarceration system and normalizes it in many ways is this sort of dehumanization of people. And I feel like it's sort of those attitudes have sort of crept into a lot of the gender discourse. And I see a sort of creeping criminalization of the way people are the left in particular are sort of coming to these issues. And it, it's extremely worrisome. Say more about that. In what ways do you see, you know, a sort of punitive approach to talking about gender from the left? Can you give an example or two? Well, I mean, the prime example in my mind is what's happening with Title IX in the American university system. So a lot of people don't know about this, the problems with it, because, of course, the mainstream media won't cover it for all the reasons we already discussed. But, you know, basically, because there were, well, there's sort of been a pendulum swing away from problem being that universities wanted to cover up incidences of rape and sexual you know, abuse on college campuses. Of course, it's bad publicity. They don't want it to get out. So there was a sort of like shutting down of people who came forward with complaints. Now it's gone to the other side where there's basically been a whole bureaucracy set up such that if even a third party comes forward and says they think that they've witnessed something that they don't that they feel isn't doesn't have to be rape or sexual abuse it could just be creating a hostile environment related to gender whoever is accused can be just summarily thrown out of school if it's a student or you know if if faculty member threatened you know if they're, if they're not job if they're not tenured you know lose their job and they're not entitled to um, even necessarily know what the charges are against them. They're not entitled to any sort of due process in terms of being able to, you know, cross-examine the other side, to have a lawyer even present. It's just become this kind of like punishment upon accusation and the standards of what is actionable are are totally non-defined. It can be like anything that somebody wants to make an accusation feels upset about, you know. So that's really scary. And I think that it is in line with the approach of a country that has a system set up where, by and large, people who are accused of crimes in the criminal justice system never get a fair hearing either because they're presented with these draconian charges and then they are usually they're poor, so it's a different situation. They can't afford a lawyer, criminal the public defenders are overextended, and so they plea bargained at something, a lesser charge even if they might be innocent. I think the system that is already in place that previously has been really only targeting poor people and largely people of color is spreading and gender is a way that it's spreading such that this kind of lack of concern with due process, tendency to want to criminalize behavior. I think the Me Too movement definitely, while it's not the, the same because there's not the same like bureaucracy set up to like criminalize things, it goes to the level of the individual employer and so on, how they'll respond. But I'm definitely concerned with things where you know, somebody can make an accusation and then immediately, and particularly when the standards aren't clear in terms of, you know, we all know if you shoot somebody, you know, in cold blood, that's a murder. But this kind of thing, like somebody looked at me the wrong way or said something or touched my back or, you know, that's all in the same category as somebody, you know, like forcibly held a knife to my throat and raped me. It's just like there's a desire to kind of put everything in this criminalized terrible basket and have immediate action be taken without any sort of due process. And I see a lot of people embracing that mentality 
without really thinking about the repercussions of that. And to me, I guess, because in part, I've spent a lot of time studying and thinking about the criminal justice system, because I just finished a book on yoga and the criminal justice, teaching yoga and the criminal justice system. I taught yoga in Cook County Jail for five years. You know, I have a background in political science. I, I did a project way back when on sentencing in, in the criminal justice system when all of these terrible laws were being instituted on the drug war, which is a terrible thing that filled up oh, our jails and prisons in the United States. Right. Way back when that was first started, it was the same thing. People were like, some people were sort of saying, this isn't good. But it was like, no, the war on drugs, it's all bad. We got to lock everybody up, shut it down. And it's really, I see things through that lens of a society that's moving in the wrong direction. Rather than criminalizing more things and being more prone to, you know, having sort of lack of due process and we should be moving in the other direction. And again, I thought we were. You know, there was a bipartisan even movement um, before this last election. We we're starting to get some traction on criminal justice reform. And it just seemed to have all gotten derailed, which I find very distressing. It is so, I mean, talk about, this is another thing I think the left should be on. The criminal justice system, this is kind of going away from your question, but I'll just give a little pitch. That's okay. I'm sympathetic to this point, so please go the ahead. The criminal justice system in the United States is a human rights disaster. I mean, it's just, it is unspeakably terrible and is in so need of having attention put on it and bright light shown and reforms made. So desperately in need. And it is, again, very disillusioning to me that just when it seemed like there was starting to be some momentum on this, after decades of um, letting it get worse, that suddenly it's derailed and it's just nobody's talking about it anymore. Like what happened to all that Black Lives Matter kind of momentum to go to the next level of policy reform? It, it just seems to have stopped. And and so and getting back to the gender issues, I mean, that's the criminalization, the, you know, sort of, you're not even guilty and prove it till proven innocent. It's like, if you're charged with something, like you're done. Like that's really scary. That is very, very, very scary to me. And it's very scary that I'm one of the few people on the left who seems to see it that way. At least if my social media and friends circles are any indication, other people just sort of seem to think that, I, I don't know, they just seem to think that anyone who would it's always, it's got to be right. Like anyone who's accused is accused for a good reason. And if they're punished, they deserve it. It's always that way. And I, I don't see the world as generally operating. I feel like you need a lot of safeguards in place. And even then it generally won't operate that way, but you try to build the best system you can, you know, and also cultural norms have to support it. And so I just feel like we're moving in a bad direction and that we should be talking more about the level of okay, how do we have really good, clean, fair, efficient processes for dealing with criminal matters that should be criminal matters and make sure they get, they're fair, they're fast, they're equitable? How do we make that happen? And then all these realms of things that are more murky, like two college students were drinking and then they had sex and they woke up and are unsure about you know what happened. And I, I mean, that sort of thing. Like, let's help people learn how to talk to each other Let's help people learn how to, you know, be more understanding and reflective of their own behavior. Let's help them build relationship skills. Let's have them, let's value relationships. Let's value communication. Let's value 
learning how to connect with people of the opposite, you know, sex or gender, whatever you want to say, in caring, thoughtful, and also safe ways, you know, but to be safe really actually requires um, the ability to communicate to yourself right. and, and to safe others. safe does not mean safe space as in I'm immune from ideas that I don't like or that I find offensive, which is what safe space has come to mean. No, for many I people. think safe means, <laughs> yeah, I think safe means having certain clear lines, like clear lines that people understand these are lines you don't cross. I am kind of more of a believer in, you know, you need clarity. And then also you need skills in terms of being able to advocate for yourself, being able to think for yourself, being able to communicate to others, being able to have some support if you feel that communication breaks down. I mean, I've been married for a long time and there's been times when we went to couples counseling because our communication broke down and it was very helpful to have a third party to help us get back in track. I mean, there's people who study these things in terms of what are like the key signs where, you know, relationships break down and how they can give you some skills in terms of how do you get out of those holes? You know, there's nonviolent communication skills. Like, why aren't we putting more emphasis on that when clearly people need it. And it makes sense that people need it in terms of gender issues because, you know, even in my own lifetime, things have changed so radically that, of course, there's a lot of confusion, you know? Yeah. And this is really the role that contemplative practices could could help to play. And, and there's this whole mindfulness and social emotional learning movement in K-12 schools. And there's also contemplative pedagogy that's start, starting to permeate higher education as well. You know, can you elaborate on sort of what do you see as the most promising avenues for teaching people um, these skills? Because I do think they have to be taught clearly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, with my work with the Yoga Service Council, I do know um, people who are doing wonderful work in terms of helping kids from a very young age start to develop skills of um, learning how to work with their minds, breaths, their mind, their breath, sometimes movement, sometimes not, because that's something you can't always, you know, do asana everywhere. To, you know, not only notice your emotions and your reactivity, but learn how to meet them mindfully so that you can make choices about how to respond and creating a culture in which that is valued, which is another big part of it, is that I think there's a, when you're doing these things together with kids, helping them understand that, you know, not only are there ways in which you can learn how to know more about yourself and your responses and your emotions and then have skills to help name and, and communicate that and how to meet it so that you don't necessarily have to just act out if you're angry. You can perhaps meet that anger and not just shut it down, but understand it better and then make choices about how to respond in a way that's positive for you and positive for others but that you're creating an environment, a culture or microculture really, where that's seen as something worth investing time in, worth doing together, and that you're supporting other people in that process. So I definitely know people doing that work with kids, integrating you know, yoga, mindfulness, breathing, social, emotional learning, 
that sort of thing. And I, I see it as, you know, very, very positive. Now the whole level of, you know, dealing with, um, you know, questions of like, what is sexual harassment in the workplace? How should it be fined? What's actionable? What's not? I mean, that's a whole different level of discussion that needs to be go on among people who are adults who are, you know, both coming from their own experience and people who are coming from an understanding of law and how that works and, 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 you know, having discussions and having some rules and guidelines and penalties and clarity put in place so that men and women can work together in ways that are good for everybody and good for the enterprise that they're collectively engaged in. But I do think that, you know, some of the work that's been doing with, that's being done with the mindfulness and social emotional learning with kids. And that's gained way increasing acceptance in the past 10 years in particular. I mean, it's gone from being like a very fringe thing that, you know, would be odd to do to something that is more and more and more accepted and even sought after. So I do think there's some very positive changes coming in. And if those things can be done in a way that, you know, is sophisticated and is sensitive to cultural differences and is not trying to shut out, you know, a sort of larger social picture by giving kids individual skills and not being just like, there's a critique of like, well, this is all just sort of giving kids ways to like, you know, sort of sedate themselves so they can adapt to an oppressive system. It could be that, right? But it, like, don't get mad, just, you know, take your test and sit still sort of thing. But I, I, I think I know a lot of people doing this work. And I know for a fact that like, they have no interest in anything like that. And that what they're, they're really about is, you know, helping kids with their lives, helping teachers really be educators and helping struggling schools do the best they can in very difficult circumstances. So I think there's, you know, there's a lot of good work going on and we can always do better. But um, like at the Yoga Service Council, we've been very interested in trying to develop best practices for these kind of emerging fields and bringing people together to really brainstorm on like, what is the best we know collectively out of this kind of emerging body of work that we can agree on is a best practice? And how do we, how do we share that information and sort of try to hold each other accountable in a way that is, you know, supportive and um, uplifting everybody together? Right. Thank you for that. I couldn't help, but uh, I wanted to give the opportunity to sort of tie in yoga and mindfulness and kind of keep coming back to that theme. So I, sorry to take us off the track of the gender issue, but I, I wanted to give you that opportunity. But I do want to ask you about the James DeBoer memo, because I, I think it gets to this issue of having the ability to talk about things. And, and this seems to be part of the issue, regardless of the extent to which one might agree with what DeMore said or not. There seems to be a clear message was it's not okay to talk about these things or to raise particular viewpoints. It's this punitive model. And I don't come at this from a scientific background, but one thing I will say, and it's not only Peterson who has said this, I've heard other psychologists say there was a guest yesterday. What was his name? He was actually Sam Harris's most recent guest, but he's an evolutionary psychologist with a PhD from Stanford, who's university professor, I think, at University oh, of New Sam Mexico. Harris? I was just starting yeah, Jeffrey to Miller. that early. Yeah, I was just yeah. listening to that earlier. And mm -hmm. he said if DeMore had handed that memo in as a paper for a graduate school class, it would have received an A in terms of being in line with the scientific literature. And and, and so it's, it's bizarre where – it's not only bizarre, it's disturbing where we're hearing several prominent psychologists say – what he's saying is very much a legitimate viewpoint 
in terms of the scientific literature, and he's being fired for articulating that. And it feeds into this whole red pill notion that the, the right wants to believe in. And I think it actually makes things worse when we make these topics taboo to talk about. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can kind of take that on and, and what you think of the discussions around gender that this incident reveals. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, again, this is one of these things that you know a lot of my close friends and relatives would not agree with and not like. But for me, the James Damore memo was an earlier similar experience to what I described with Jordan Peterson. So in this case, it was just, I just happened to keep seeing, you know, randomly this mention of the memo and mostly reading left of center publications, blogs, newspapers, and so on. It was all, you know, there's this, you know, misogynistic, hateful screed that this Google employee, you know, was circulating. And, uh, you know, he thinks women are inferior and can never be engineers. It's an outrage. This is emblematic of the hostile climate that women face. It's terrible. Da, 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 da. I was like, oh, I wasn't paying that much attention to it, honestly, but I kept kind of noticing. It. And then finally, one day, there was a link in something I was reading. I was reading on my computer and there was a link to the memo and I wasn't that busy. And I thought, well, you know, I'd kind of like to read this myself. So I clicked on the link to the memo and I started reading it and I found that I didn't experience, it was just like Jordan Pearson, like I didn't experience it as a hateful misogynistic screed. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was written in a way that was trying to be respectful. I, you know, it was kind of like, hmm, I don't know about this, but yeah, that makes sense. And, uh, you know, I just didn't have this reaction of this is a horrible thing that shouldn't be allowed to exist. On the contrary, I just kind of thought like, well, I, I would have a conversation about this. And, and so then, of course, I thought, well, why am I getting this narrative that doesn't conform at all to my experience of reading the actual memo? That was, yeah, it is a red pill moment except for the fact that, you know, I feel like the right is in many ways doing the mirror image of the left in terms of constructing their own narrative and their own enemies and all that kind of stuff. But it was a kind of eye-opening loss of faith in what I had taken to be reliable news sources. And if a story is out there being repeated enough and among publications that I take to be you know, sort of more or less serious about journalistic standards and so on. I thought it was basically true. And then all of a sudden I read it for myself. It's like, wait, I don't think this is true. And so then I started looking into it more deeply. And um, I listened to some of James Damore's um, interview with uh, Dave Rubin. And, you know, he, and he said the only places that would interview him at any length, other than like taking out a clip where he is kind of looking bad would be like right of center outlets. No one, he said, you know, no left of center outlet will let me, you know, really talk at length and, and have a dialogue. And I, I thought, well, that's problematic. And I have noticed this increasing prominence of people, uh, Brett Weinstein uh, and the guy on, you know, you mentioned on Sam Harris, who I'd never heard before, but this whole field of evolutionary biology, you know, sort of coming to the fore as like an alternative framework for talking about gender issues and pointing out that, hmm, isn't it perhaps problematic that we have this whole way of framing, particularly on the left, though I guess across the spectrum, actually gender issues that is completely uninformed by um, science in terms of 
you know, what we understand about human evolution and da da da, you know, the world, the biological world. And there are people who study things from that perspective, and perhaps they have something that is worth considering. I mean, in my view, why wouldn't you consider it? Well, because as you said, the the left has these sort of no-go zones. You can't consider it because it disrupts the narrative. So you can't consider it, so you shut it down. But I, I think that's problematic. And I think that it's then it feeds into this kind of punitive culture, right? Where not only if you do something that could be considered offensive, you can be that is vaguely defined in many gray areas, you can have immediate negative sanctions. But perhaps if you write or even say something that is considered outside of these tightly controlled boundaries, then that could be actionable as well. That's really scary. So it's very dismaying, you know, and I, I mean, I've had blow ups and uh, been reactive myself with someone I'm very close to about this James Damore memo, because I started off very calmly saying that, you know, I think you should look at that. And I also sent her excerpts from his lawsuit where he detailed all of the, I mean, to say pushback is, is an understatement, like really aggressive attacks from within Google that were going on on their internal message boards. As an aside, I wonder, like, I've never had been in an office job where people spend all this time, like, on internal message board. Like, wh- what do they ever work? I mean, what's going on at this place? Besides that, I just thought it was weird. But the sort of stuff he has in his, I read his his brief. You know, again, it was posted on Facebook. And by that time, or not Facebook, but social media, by this time, I'm thinking, like, I'm going to go to the original documents. Like, no more am I going to just believe the news reports I'm going to read the original documents, listen to the original conversations, and get more, when I can, an unfiltered view about these issues, which is, in fact, why when Jordan Peterson came up, this is, I'd already noticed it with James Damore. It's like, okay, I'm just going to listen to him myself. You know, I'm not going to just keep reading articles about him. I'll just go listen to him talk for two hours to you know, Joe Rogan or whoever it is and you know, make up my own mind. You know? And I think why I got into this immediate blow up with my friend about James Damore is that we tend to put these issues about sex and gender very easily into our own experiences and often our own most traumatic experiences or our own most deeply held sort of values and experiences. And it's hard not to be reactive. So if you, for example, if you're a woman, you've had a really bad experience with at work or maybe a negative impact on your career from a man, you read that and all that kind of floods up, as we know, you know, from doing mindfulness practices and studying our reactivity and, or thinking about triggering and all that, it all floods up and you lose, you become suffused with those feelings, you stop thinking more objectively about the whole thing and everything is seen through that lens. Well, perhaps someone else has had a very different sort of experience. In fact, the worst experience I ever had at work with an impressive boss was with a woman. So, you know, my default is a bit different. I've had better, much better experiences working with men than, well, two women in particular, one who was just incredibly oppressive and manipulative and terrible. So that was very true. That's the one that landed me in the hospital. (laughs) You know what I mean? From, and made me quit my job. So, you know, you have, we all have our own particular experience. You start blaming the matriarchy. Yeah. Well, you know, see, that's a little harder to do from my, where I, my social position, but I guess what it is, is that I do, we all see things through our own lenses and when they're hot button issues, 
that so affect our lives, or, or certainly if you have been raped, um, or if you have had an abusive parent, or you know whatever, those things are so prone to flooding your emotional field, particularly when everyone else around you is reinforcing that, and in some cases, even sort of valorizing, expecting that flooding and emotionality to happen, it's very hard to then step back and be able to sort of like look at what's in front of you and discuss it with somebody who's having a completely sort of opposite sort of emotional experience because of what it brings up in, in them. And so I think that's a lot of what's going on. So it would be great if we did, again, have more of not only the practices to try and diffuse some of that, not to shut it down, it's a very different thing, but to process it without being so reactive, but also a culture that rather than implicitly or ac- explicitly valorizing sort of reactivity and then, you know, sort of punitive action that valorized in the broadest spectrum of cases possible, communication positive relationship building skills, and, you know, a kind of restorative justice if there is something that in fact does need to be restored. But, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the James Dorr memo is something that we should be able to just discuss. It certainly should not be something that he was fired from Google for. I think that that is really problematic, but I understand that probably most people who are on kind of my side, quote unquote, of the political spectrum would really disagree with me on that. You know, it's a big divergence. I mean, I do see why, but I don't agree with it. I feel like we should hold ourselves to a higher standard and be able to, you know, discuss something like that, even if we disagree with it. And I don't think people should. And I, my understanding on, just on top of all this is that Google employees, including him, were invited to give responses to these kind of diversity and equity trainings and so on. They gave them as employees at Google. So he was, in fact, doing what he was asked to do, right? He just didn't hew to the party line and didn't back down on it. And then it started gaining too much attention. So they had to get rid of him. Right. I mean, there are a couple of things to say. One, it's interesting. You know, there's often talk about we can't discuss this because the emphasis is on marginalized voices and he's attacking marginalized voices. And so he's framed as the white male. But, you know, as people have pointed out about DeMore and as he's talked about himself, he's somewhere on the autism spectrum for sure. Yes. So now in that light, all of a sudden, wait, maybe isn't DeMore himself a person with a disability? And how do we factor that in, in terms of he can't quite read social cues the way that other people can and should people with autism and Asperger's be giving a little bit more of a pass or should they have some compassion as well in terms of their inability, you know, to sort of read those kind of cues? But that doesn't fit into the kind of popular discourse, you know, that emphasizes a few common variables, right, around race, gender. And so he got put into that box. But I think one, that's sort of an interesting nuanced dimension to the debate. I think the other thing that I really see as a big shame is that, you know, there are so many serious issues with respect to gender and women's empowerment and sexism. I mean, as a guy, hearing some of the stuff that came out in the Me Too movement, you know, about things like Matt Lauer and things like that, it's it's stunning. I want to say to other guys like what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, you know, you don't like get it together. You don't know how to just have even the most basic sense 
of decency. Like the the defining line is is consent, right? Is consensual behavior, and not to mention all these other things that that enter in around workplace and just kind of what I think most people would consider common sense. But I guess as someone who continues to think that there's so many issues to talk about, and and I'll throw in issues around pay as well into that discussion. But then when we talk about an incredibly complex, nuanced topic like the gender pay gap as something which isn't nuanced, right, and is simply a result of sexism and the patriarchy, it totally destroys all the credibility we have. It's sort of like it's the death of nuance. It kind of reminds me what the left used to hate about George W. Bush was he was this black and white guy you know, who took these complex problems, but liberals were someone who talked about things in a sophisticated way. Well, I see a lot of obliteration of complex issues from the left. And the gender pay gap is towards the top of that pile. And I would say Claudia Golden, who's an economist from Harvard, for anyone who wants to research that would be a wonderful person to look at her work. But I'm curious as someone who, you know, was on a very powerful kind of high track job and chose to step out of that for personal reasons, if maybe you could talk about your perspective on the issue, because I think you bring an interesting perspective on this issue, perhaps. Yeah, totally. Because so the gender pay gap, I mean, that was a big flashpoint in that infamous Jordan Peterson. Is it Kathy Newman that her name, that Canadian journalist interview. Yeah, where he was saying that there's multiple factors that explain the gender pay gap and it's not simply, you know, patriarchal oppression of men by women or women by men, whatever exactly that means. And she was saying, well, you know, sort of like, so you're saying you don't really care about her or whatever. I mean, it was just all this kind of mischaracterization. He was, and I, I mean, first I felt one, as a social scientist, the reference he was making to multivariate analysis and so on are absolutely right. I mean, anyone knows who's had the basic training in statistics, what he's talking about there, and it totally made sense. And two, then on a more personal level, it also made a lot of sense to me in that I couldn't, like circumstances did not present themselves as I had wished where I could stay on my chosen career track and be with Uh, the man I wanted to marry and did marry and have children live in the same place. I I mean, it just wasn't going to happen. I had to make choice of, you know, either, you know, commuter marriage without children or a commuter marriage with children or changing my work or having my husband change my work, his work, because we, you know, we've been trying to get jobs in the same place for quite a few years. It just wasn't happening. And one ages out as a woman of being able to have biolog- your own biological children, the risk of birth defects goes up a lot after 35, it gets harder to get pregnant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it just, things weren't panning out. And I actually you know, went through a lot of deep reflection on this. I actually, before I left academia, I did a year of therapy only to talk about the question of sort of, you know, how do I make this choice? You know, Because I, I really want to have my own children, but I'm going to get old. I don't want to you know, hit these biological barriers. But of course, you never know what's going to happen if you've spent your entire life trying not to get pregnant. All of a sudden, you want to get pregnant, don't know what's going to happen. And I spent a long time getting a PhD. I got a tenure track job. That's a big deal. It seemed crazy to walk away from that and da 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 da. So I've reflected a lot on these issues because it was a very difficult decision to make. But I 
feel that leaving academics in order to live in the same city with my husband and have children was the right decision for me. I mean, it's decades later and I'm extremely happy I made that decision. But I've also known many other women do all different sorts of things and have all different sorts of marital arrangements. And I think the best way to make the right choice is to try to know yourself as well as possible, try to think as deeply about the trade-offs you have to make and understand that you most likely will have to make big trade-offs. And and I think that it is simply true by and large of what I've seen that many women, when push comes to shove, will go to great lengths to have family and have children. That it's not for everybody and it's not to say it's the best and all that kind of thing. But many women who did not expect themselves to be that sort of person, like me, for example. <laughs> I I never liked babies. I never had any, you know, like, oh, I, you know, want to be pregnant. I want to no, I it wasn't. But when it got to the point of like, okay, this window may close and you have to make a decision, I found that my priorities started shifting. And then when I actually did have children, my priorities shifted a lot because, you know, I was fortunate enough that I was able to make a choice that I wanted to make. But that said, it also took a certain amount of courage and willingness to change course and self-reflection to make that choice because it wasn't an easy choice to make. But I found that having children, just kind of like I was saying about doing yoga, opened up a whole new world to me and done it made changes the way I thought about so many things. Having children definitely did that well. I mean, it was a profound life shift and made me think about everything differently. And it's been, you know, a very difficult and a very wonderful and meaningful experience to be a parent. And, you know, I've watched many other women as they negotiate the balance between work and children and it's a hard one to strike and and there's no one right answer for anybody. But I will say that the reason that many women choose to say, not pursue the course of climbing to the top of the corporate ladder or whatever it is, is because they decide that they want to invest more choice and more, more of their time and energy and family rather than work, you know, 80 hours a week to, you know, attain more and more professional status. A lot of women do make that choice. And you know what? I think it's, a perfectly respectable and honorable thing to do. <laughs> and one of the things I don't like about the way feminism has evolved is that it, in the United States at least, I think it has tended to really devalue the work of homemaking, caretaking, parenting, all that kind of stuff. And I know I struggled a lot with feeling sort of like, you know, I'm not doing the right feminist thing also, or, you know, this isn't like I'm doing things that aren't as prestigious. And it is very hard on my sort of ego and identity. But again, for me, I feel it was the right thing, but it would have been nice. Like I feel like in the abstract, feminism was supposed to be about giving women choices and honoring our differences on these kind of issues and making it be okay to want to wake, work 80 hours a week and climb to the top of the professional ladder in your field if that really called to you. Or it would be equally okay and equally honorable if you could manage to do it to be a full-time mom. But in practice, I really don't feel that's the case. In practice, I feel like you know the culture has shifted or maybe it just maybe we've women were just have been absorbed in the dominant culture of what makes what 
gives you value is making a lot of money, which I would say is also a value standard that oppresses men because not all men want to work eight hours a week either to climb to the top of some ladder. And you know what I mean? Like a lot of men would like to have more balanced lives. Most do not. Yeah, they don't want to. They might like yeah. to have some time to have friendships and do sports and have relationships and travel. And you know what I mean? Like very few people are that driven. But I think what a lot of these people in these kind of you know, intellectual dark web type, you know, conversations who are talking about this stuff are pointing out, and Jordan Peterson pointed out that if you look statistically at who are those who are more likely to have that kind of hyper competitive drive where they want to like be the dominant person in this field and so on and give up everything else in order to do it, that by and large, those people do tend to be men. I would say that from what I've observed in my experience, that is just true. You know, and it might not be politically correct. That's the honestly what I've seen. And I don't think that our standard of what matters should be who runs, you know, sort of the Fortune 500 companies. I think our standard should be how do we co create a more humane, just, and caring world? And certainly, one thing that we need a lot more of is, I think, honoring people who do the work of caretaking, which occurs both with children and certainly men, you know, are, it's important to have fathers and men can play incredible caretaking roles and do often, but also with our elders, you know, people are living longer and longer and that becomes a huge thing as well. So like getting back to the James Damore memo and the blow up I had with um, a friend of mine who is female, I think that what happened was he had some things in the memo that basically said, something along I don't remember exactly what it was but you know statistically if you look at you know women's preferences and choice structures and so on basically what I'm saying is that a lot of women like I did will make choices that will in some way cut back on their professional ambitions and and potentials in order to invest in other things in life particularly children and family and that a lot of women will a lot more women might tend to make that choice for a variety of reasons, some biological, some social, whatever, but we do see that happening. And um, since I had made that choice, when I saw that in the memo, I actually felt validated. Whereas my friend who has no children and did not ever make those kind of choices, never you know, really seriously partnered with anybody, never had children and had negative experiences with, with men in the workplace, she immediately saw that, all that through her lens of like just another, you know, sort of stereotypical, just another stereotype that's put on women that's a way to kind of keep us from advancing. And because it that fit with her pain, I guess, and her concerns and her life story. But my life story was different. And so then the James Damore memo became something to fight over and our ability to sort of come at it and say like, oh, maybe we're reacting to this differently because we bring in these different things and and have a conversation about that was totally nullified. Yeah. And you articulate it in a way that had this bigger view. And of course, it's easier in retrospect, but it's important as well to have compassion because you can see how certain people's experiences predispose them, you know, as all of our experiences do towards interpreting events differently. And it's important to have that compassion as a foundation, I think, when we dialogue with people. But, you know, I think it's, you know, one thing that jumps out at me is, and I think you point out a couple of great things, it's 
it's already an outlier. It's a small group of people who are willing to work 80 to 100 hours, men and women, right? Like that's just not most people. And for whatever reason, disproportionately to Moore and Peterson and other people are arguing, scientific literature shows there are biological differences between men and women. And men just seem to be disproportionately more likely the kind of people to do that. Now, I would point out, you know, as a guy, and I was one of these guys, I, I had a job coming out of college at a high-powered Wall Street bank. And it became very obvious to me that who cares how much money you're making when you don't have any time to enjoy it, you know? And, you know, I now live a life outside of the United States where I'm very cognizant of a point you just made, which is I think in a lot of ways what that, and it's not only feminist, but what that feminist viewpoint is tacitly endorsing is it's endorsing the underlying value structure of the society, which is that it's a good thing to be, you know, like that's the model, right? To be the CEO of the Fortune 500 company. It's endorsing those capitalists, and it's not only capitalists, but I'm just, I'm very aware of how culturally relative values are around work. I live in a country, Thailand, where that's totally the opposite. And, you know, it's not even regional. There are many countries in Asia that mirror the United States, like a Singapore or South Korea or Japan. And Thailand is the opposite of that. And I can tell you, I think in terms of mental health and in terms of overall happiness, what we see in terms of quality of life in these happiness surveys, the kind of, uh, given their wealth, the kind of um, countries like the United States and South Korea and Japan aren't doing particularly well, at least given their, their wealth in terms of overall quality of life. Because past a certain point in income, you know, those increases in income don't make that big of a difference. It really is things like leisure time, friends and family, travel, you know, spending time with your kids, whatever it is you value. And it's, it's interesting how we're sort of lionizing that particular model of the workaholic as something to which we should all be aspiring. I think it, it speaks to an underlying pathology in a way. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and again, I, I feel like that was not supposed to be what feminism was about. But honestly, in my experience, a lot of it just got kind of sucked up into that default, cultural default. And it's one that I really am not happy with. And, and th that's been true for a long time. And I, I know, you know, there is good, you know, sort of social science research on exactly what you just said, that, you know, up to a certain point of having, you know, your, your basic material needs met, having more wealth makes huge increases in happiness. Like, of course, we're not happy if we're, you know, scrounging for the next meal and all that kind of stuff. But beyond a certain point, having more wealth has has very little, if any, you know, sort of correlation with increased happiness and well-being. And, and certainly um, I've known and we've all read about many people who are very wealthy and, and for that matter, powerful, who are, are deeply unhappy and often, you know, sort of really messed up people. And so I certainly haven't seen, whether in the research literature or in my own personal experience or in, you know, just reading journalistic accounts of what happens in the world, I've seen no evidence whatsoever that there's any reason, any good reason to valorize this model of, you know, like the more wealth and power you attain, 
the better. And that, that if women aren't doing that to the same degree as men, then this is a terrible problem that we must rectify. I mean, my view would be, you know, more like what we need is to, again, getting back to the earlier conversation, what we need to do is, you know, build up a stable middle class that gets people up to that level of secure basic needs met and having enough time and security in life to pursue things that make most of us happier, which are actually relationships with ourselves and with others and then with something larger, you know, in my mind, like whether you call that God or nature or whatever, it's those relationships that I think give our lives meaning and and keep us anchored in the world and wanting to keep forging ahead in a positive way, regardless of all the challenges and struggles. I mean, I feel it's relationship that really matters. And there's ways in which I feel that unwittingly, the way the feminist movement has evolved, it's undercut the value of relationship because traditionally it was women's role, you know, that we were the ones to kind of hold the family together and do all the relationship work and, and so on. And And I certainly saw in my own family life that that lopsided model, when the work of relationship becomes very lopsided, it's not just that it's oppressive for women, it's very painful for men, you know, like this, this older model of men who need to be totally so emotionally self-contained and sort of, you know, just be the provider and not, you know, really not like so independent, you don't need relationship or whatever. That's not a happy way to live for uh, most people, most men, I believe. I can't speak as a man, but this is what I witnessed. And, you know, I really felt like there was something there that was a a vision of sort of, we're going to make this better for everybody that I feel like we need to get back to. Like we need to get back to sort of like, how do these gender changes and all this, how how does that mean we're co-creating a world that's better for everybody? You know, it's not just like women need more power you know, or, or, or whatever. It's not about, in my mind, power. The positive thing is about better relationships, better opportunities that are meaningful and a culture that supports the ability to make choices that help human flourishing both collectively and, and are respectful of, of individual differences. So it's not like, oh, because you're a woman, you must do X. You must be a teacher or secretary or whatever. You know, you could be an engineer. You could be whatever you want to be. Same with a man. You could be, you know, if you want to devote more time to family and, you know, be the primary caretaker and do X or Y on the side to make money and contribute, that's honorable too. You don't have to be the primary breadwinner in the family or, or whatever. I mean, all these things, I thought the vision was supposed to be, when I say, I, like when I was younger, you know, I kind of felt that that was what this was about. It was about more equity and choices in such a way that it would create more opportunities for everybody to live more balanced and more meaningful lives. And instead, I feel like it's kind of gotten off track (laughs) from that. It's a lot about power. It's a lot about resentment. It's a lot about, there's a lot of conflict. There's a lot, very little, I think, emphasis seems to be placed on, again, these kind of, you know, communication skills, you know, relationship skills, the value of caretaking, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. What jumps out Mm -hmm. at me as you're saying this, I think you're articulating it very well. I I think what our culture needs is actually more of the archetypal feminine energy and values, not more women trying to emulate masculine values or an amplification of those values. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's funny because right now I hear so much about, you know, feminine rising, we need more of the feminine and so on, but it does seem 
like, in fact, I feel like the culture is moving away that whether you want to use that language or not, frame it feminine, feminine, masculine, but it seems like we're leaving behind valuing things like caring, relationship, nurturing, love, you know, like nobody seems to be valuing those things or that's sort of like too soft, really, right? And so it does seem like a devaluing of what was traditionally considered the feminine. I don't really care if it's those languages or not. It's just more like the actual reality of it. (laughs) Those things are important. We all know they're important. And I think we need a society that values it. And, and, you know, and again, going back to a more left critique, you could certainly tie it into the rise of, you know, how the economy has been reshaped with, you know, neoliberalism and the rise of consumerism and all this kind of stuff. But I would also fault the left in the way that some of these movements have, have gone, that the energy and the value has moved away from some of these very fundamental human needs and um, social goods. Yeah. Well, I think that's it's very well said, Carol, and I could easily continue to kind of build on that idea and ask you more questions, but I'm so conscious of the fact that we've spoken for about two hours now and it's late your time. So I want to give you the chance to, to go to bed at a reasonable hour. But before I do so, I want to let people know where they can find you and learn more about your works or your talks or any of your other offerings. Sure. So I have a website, www.carolhortonphd.com. And I try to keep it updated with links to my articles. All my books are certainly listed there, you know, in various podcasts and events and all that kind of stuff. So that's all there. In terms of my yoga related work, which I'm kind of interested in perhaps transitioning a little more towards some of this political stuff we've been focusing on, but I have been very involved with the Yoga Service Council. And in terms of the what I call socially engaged yoga, the stuff about like going into the schools and teaching mindfulness and social emotional learning, that's a great place for that. And it's yogaservicecouncil.org. Excellent. Carol, thank you so much. This was a fascinating conversation and I really enjoyed speaking with you and, and hearing what you had to share. 